Would you stand, please? Philippians chapter 2. Starting verse 25. Here's the word of the Lord. I have counted necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier, and your messenger, and your minister to my need. Oh, for he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed, because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. Oh, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious or less sorrow. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Please be seated. A few weeks ago, The Atlantic published an article, and the title of the article was The Last Children of Down Syndrome. The Last Children of Down Syndrome. And the subtitle was Prenatal testing is changing who gets born and who doesn't. This is just the beginning. When I read the article, I cried. Uh, here, I'm just going to give you some of the comments from the article. I studied in Denmark. It says, Denmark became one of the first countries in the world to offer prenatal Down syndrome screening to every pregnant woman, regardless of age or the risk factors. Nearly all expecting mothers choose to take the test. Of those who get a Down syndrome diagnosis, more than 95% choose to abort. It goes on, it says, Since universal screening was introduced, the number of children born with Down syndrome has fallen sharply. In 2019, only 18 were born in the entire country. About 6,000 children with Down syndrome are born in the U.S. each year. The forces of scientific progress are now marching towards ever more testing to detect ever more genetic conditions. Recent advancements in genetics provoke anxieties about a future where parents choose what kind of child to have or not to have. Meaning, whatever will bother me, I will put to death. If it's not what I was expecting, if it's not what I want. And let us not think, oh, that's just Denmark. Here in the U.S., it's estimated that 67 percent of the pregnancies that carry an indication of Down syndrome are being aborted. And that's what sin does. Sin makes us monsters, selfish, self-centered, egocentric. Why so much abortion? Why so much killing of Down syndrome babies? Because it's not in my agenda. It's not in my plans. It's not what I want. Therefore, I will execute whatever threat the convenience must be exterminated. Even if it means killing babies in the womb. And the self-centered egomaniac mentality permanently permeates in homes, workplaces, government, and sadly, in many houses of worship. Many churches in America are filled with people that's all about me. 
my comfort, my happiness, my likes, my time, my money, my, my, me, me, me. And selfishness destroys societies, families, churches. But God had mercy on us. And the only remedy against selfishness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God has provided the remedy in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the joyful and the wonderful news that in Christ Jesus, the old, selfish, murderous, monstrous heart is exchanged for a new heart, a heart that is connected to the heart of Jesus Christ. Therefore, instead of looking only to my own interests, instead of doing from selfish ambition, instead of counting myself more significant than others in Christ, I'm empowered and able to do what? The opposite. Completely opposite. So you might ask, what does the article in the Atlantic about children with Down syndrome have to do with Epaphroditus and Philippians? Everything. Epaphroditus is a replica, a living replica of what it means to place the interests of others above your own. Risking your comfort for the sake of others. That's what the gospel does in our lives, and that's what we see in the life of this man. So, here's where we are heading. We saw last Lord's Day who Paul is sending in verse 25. And today we're going to continue our journey, and hopefully we're going to finish verses 26 through 20 through 30. So let's. Let's just briefly review, briefly because last Lord's Day we spent an hour in verse 25, so no need to linger here anymore. And I know that that laughter is a laughter of joy. <laughs> so verse 25, I have counted necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, and I know that some of you, after last Lord's Day, start kind of enjoying this name, because you start enjoying the character. And suddenly, even the name you start liking. And you remember the name derived from Ep, Aphrodite, Ep, Aphroditos, the masculine, meaning that he was, the name is related to Aphrodite. And you remember with Venus, the same goddess, and tracing the lineage to Caesar. So this baby boy was dedicated to Caesar, most probably. Okay? And the power of the gospel in conquering him and transferring lordship. And how Paul addresses him with beautiful, five beautiful and powerful accolades. It's five titles of honor. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. We fight together. We strive side by side together. We resemble each other in our affections for the church. We have the same Lord. We are working under the same lordship, fellow workers. And then he says, your messenger and your minister. So let's keep going. Let's go to verse 26 now. Because now Paul is going to explain why he's sending Epaphroditus. Remember, he explains why he's not sending Timothy. In the preceding verses, he says why he's not sending Timothy. And now he's explaining why he's sending Epaphroditus right away. So look at verse 26. For, so that's the reason. For, he has been longing... For you all. That's what he says. Longing for all the members of his church. The word for longing here is important. Because that's the same word he used in chapter 1, verse 8. And in verse 8 of chapter 1, Paul says, For God is my witness, how I yearn, how I long for you all with the affections of Christ Jesus. That's very important, brothers and sisters. Some, I have heard some people preaching through this text and they say, Oh, Epaphroditus was homesick, thinking about mommy's food or his wife and his kids and he just needs to go back home. No, 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 that's not what's happening here. This is the same longing that Paul has for the members of his church. That deep affection. Paul and Epaphroditus are brothers. They share the same affection. That's what Paul is pointing here. And he's longing, he's yearning for a few members of the church. 
some members of the church. All, all the members of the church. His longing was impartial and transcendent. Transcending any division in the local church. It's one thing to miss some members, right? Oh, I miss some members of the church. I miss a few members of the church. But it's a whole other game to long for all the members. Amen? So when you're out, you're traveling, and you have the church directory, and you're looking at the names and the faces are coming to you, and even those that sometimes you have a hard time, you should be longing to be with that person. Because you know that in God's providence, He's using that individual to make you more like Christ. And that's what's happening right here. He has been longing. The verb, the, the tense here in the verb shows that it's a constant longing. It was not a fleeting or passing feeling, but a concrete and abiding affection towards the church. So you can only imagine every time they were talking, every time Paul and Epaphroditus were talking or praying together, guess what Epaphroditus was talking about. His church. Every time Paul and Epaphroditus are there in that prison, they're talking. And Epaphroditus just keeps mentioning his church. And Paul can get that. He's longing for all of you. Every time we are praying together, Epaphroditus keeps praying for the church in Philippi. So that's not a, a passing or a fleeting feeling but an abiding affection. It's anchored in his soul. His longing for his church. And like then, amazing, you open here, First Peter chapter 2, that's the same word for yearning, longing. Exactly like a baby. He likes, he's longing to be with his family. That's the picture here. Longing for the fellowship in the church. And let me ask you, brothers and sisters, because that's the crucial time. Do you long, do you yearn for all the members of the church? Is that the time of the week when you are in ecstasy? That you're seeing everyone. That you're longing throughout the week. And now you can see and hug and talk. And when you're not present, under God's providence, you're out of town, you're sick. How is your heart? Are you glad that you didn't come to church? Or there is that thing in your heart that's longing, yearning for the members? And just another, another application here. Real men, real men, real masculinity, real manhood, real men long for their church. Okay? Real men have feelings and longings for the church. A real man is one who loves what Christ loves. What does Christ love? His church. He gave Himself for her. So I hope men here talk about the church to their friends. Talk about their church to others. Because they long, they yearn for the members. They have affections. That's real masculinity. Amen? And it says, so the two factors that Paul is standing is because of his longing and because of his distress. So we saw the longing, now look at the distress. And he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Wait a second. Now, he's distressed because he heard that the church heard that he was sick. That's amazing. That's amazing. Epaphroditus is standing at the door's death. Paul says here that he looked like death. And instead of having a self-pity party and feeling sorry for himself, he's actually deeply troubled that others know that he's sick. Even at his lowest point, he was more distressed at the thought of the Philippians' distress concerning him than at the thought of his own death. Hmm. 
And he said, for he has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. He was sick. The Greek word means without strength. In a state of weakness and incapacity. So, very serious illness that he has. You know that because Paul mentions three times that he almost died. Meaning, this was not just a cold. It was not just some allergies that he had. That was serious. Paul says that he saw in Epaphroditus death. He looked like death. And you remember, first century, uh, Peter Bolt in his commentary on Mark, he says that in the first century, those days, the, the average for a man to live was 30 years old. That was basically the average. You have no antibiotics, no medicine. You get sick, you get a cut, and most surely you will die. So, we have no idea what happened, but we know that Epaphroditus is concerned that the church heard that he is very ill. Most of us, when we get sick, we want everybody serving us. Amen? Isn't that true? We want people serving us, calling us, checking on us. And we get offended if people didn't call us and check on us to see how we are doing, if we are better or not. Not Epaphroditus. He's longing to see them because he wants to relieve their stress about him. Here is the character of of true soldier. And you see that when one member is sick, the whole body is affected. So it says in verse 27, Indeed, Paul says, indeed, it's true. It's true. Paul is saying, it's very true what you heard about him at first. Yes, he was very sick. Because you can only picture now Epaphroditus is standing in front of the church with Paul's letter, and he's looking good, he's looking healthy. And people are, wait a second, the last time I heard, I thought that you were dead. That you were very sick, very ill. And you're standing here all healthy. And Paul is saying, indeed he was very ill. There was no exaggeration. There was no hyperbole in the report. Paul says that the word here, that he was a near neighbor to death. And we don't know if it was malaria. We don't know if it was an infection, overexertion. We have no idea. We just know God's telling us that he was very sick and he almost died. And that's important for us. Some of you here have friends who are very interested in some false teachers. Some of you have very close friends who are enslaved to false teachings. False teachings of health and wealth, that God wants you to be completely healthy and wealthy. And here we see that sickness, illness, affliction affect all of us. Epaphroditus was not living in sin. He was not living in disobedience. Actually, he's an example of obedience. He's an example of godliness. And yet, he's been extremely ill. So when you hear or read people saying that if you only have enough faith, if you only trust hard enough, if only you give to this ministry, oh, then you will never get sick. You literally send that to hell. Because that's hellish. That's satanic teaching. Joe Olstein, Joyce Mayer, Jim Baker... The Bethel Group, Kenneth Hagen, Kenneth Copeland, Oral Roberts, Benny Hinn, Paula White, all false teachers. All false teachers. Here, what do you do with this text here? Where you have a godly man, extremely sick. Not in disobedience, not in sin, and yet almost died in the work of the Lord. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he's not wealthy. He's in need of people to give him money. He's broke. 
So that's very important for all of us. The godliest, most faithful men and women get sick, die, become ill. It's part of this life under God's sovereignty. Okay? But look at verse 27 because it says, But God had mercy on him. But God had mercy on him. And the language here does not imply... It's, it's, it's very hard to assume from here that Paul healed this man. It actually seems that he was healed either by natural means or by medicine or by natural medicine. We have no idea. And that's the purpose here. To show us that it doesn't matter how he got healed. What matters is that God restored him. And every time someone is healed and recovers from any sickness, it's because of the mercy of God. Every time we are healed. Have you ever been healed from a sickness? Please raise your hand if you never had a sickness. Good. <laughs> Everybody has experienced sickness. Everybody has experienced some sort of healing. Therefore, everybody should bow their knees and thank the Lord because it's an act of mercy. Sickness, illness, it's all the result of sin. What is that but a lack of harmony in our system? Sickness, illness, goes back to the Garden of Eden. When God created all things, there's perfect harmony. Sin breaks the shalom, the harmony. And sin is a reminding us that we need Christ, that we need God to restore us. And God has no obligation to heal anyone. God has no obligation to heal anyone from cancer or any other sickness. Amen? That's very important, brothers and sisters, because you know, I know people who become extremely bitter at God because He didn't heal that person. How come He didn't heal my wife? How come He didn't restore the health of my son? As if God was your slave. As if God had any obligation to show mercy. Mercy means that's mercy. He gives to whoever He wants. But God had mercy on Him. And then He says, not only on Him, but on me also. That's amazing. The union in Christ brings the union of the, the fellow brothers and sisters. Therefore, when God lavishes mercy and kindness to one member, all the members also are lavished with mercy. That's beautiful. And so often we see Christians being jealous, being angry because one is receiving more. Because one is getting something that he doesn't have. Instead of rejoicing and seeing, wow, we are the same body. We had a wonderful example this week. Abby got a free new uh, Nespresso machine. <laughs> like, Lord, rejoice. <laughs> mercy on her. Mercy on me. <laughs> and sometimes we get so angry, so upset. And say, no, no, no. Mercy. Mercy. On Sam is mercy on me. Mercy on Emily is mercy on David because of our union with Christ. When we find out that they are okay, God had mercy on them during the car accident, we all felt like we got mercy. And that's what Paul shows here. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. So when was the last time that you felt that you had received a greater measure of mercy because a brother or a sister in the church 
actually had been the primary object of God's mercy. When was the last time that somebody who was the primary object of God's mercy caused you to say, Yes, Lord, thank you. I feel like I'm getting this mercy here. Because you are in your union with Christ. And look what Paul says, verse 27, the last part. Lest I should have sorrow or affliction upon sorrow. And now here is a beautiful picture of Paul this mighty warrior, and it's that he opens the windows of his heart and he shows us how much affection he has. He has feelings. And feelings are important. We all have feelings. Sometimes we don't show very often, but we all have feelings. Affections. God made us like that. But you see how they must be channeled through and in the pipes of the gospel. Because feelings without the pipes of the gospel is disastrous. So we see here. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And the Christian life does not deny the existence of sorrow. The word here, lupe, refers to the heaviness of heart. And think about Paul. He says, sorrow upon sorrow. Where is Paul right now as he's writing this letter? He is in prison, in chains. Think about the circumstances surrounding Paul. He is in chains. He's not well fed, well clothed. People are criticizing him. Remember chapter 1, others are speaking out of rivalry. People criticizing him while he's in chains. He cannot travel. He cannot be with the churches. He cannot preach like he loves to do. That's a, that's a notion of sorrow that this man is. And the picture is, if God had not had mercy on Epaphroditus, his beloved brother, would be like just another billow, another wave, crashing him and drowning him in this ocean of sorrow. Sorrow does not eliminate joy, and joy does not eliminate sorrow. That's very important. Jesus was called the man of what? Man of sorrows, because of Isaiah 53. A man of sorrows. And yet, he was the perfect embodiment of joy. Oh. He is a man of sorrows, and also at the same time, the perfect embodiment of joy. And joy is the engine that helps us keep moving during the times of sorrow. Therefore, we have sorrows and afflictions, but our joy in the Holy Spirit keeps us from despairing and being depressed like the world. That's what Paul says to the Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who die in the Lord, that you may not grieve, lupel, as others do who have no hope. So Paul says, indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And some people will say, do you see, Paul, he's contradicting himself. In chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, he said that to die is gain. He said he would rather die. Why is now he having sorrow if his brother dies? So people say, oh, he's contradicting himself. And I live up to you. <laughs> and there is absolutely no contradiction. As we live this not yet... As you wait the consummation of all things, we have tears. We love people. And yes, we have sorrow. We miss people. Especially those who help us to grow in Christ-likeness. So Paul says, verse 28, 
I'm the more eager. And the idea here behind the Greek word is that he's sending Epaphroditus sooner than they expected. Remember that Epaphroditus was supposed to stay with Paul, and now Paul is explaining, I'm sending him sooner than you're expecting. Why? So that you may rejoice at seeing him again. So Paul is saying, I'm sending him, his duties are done. As a soldier, he has fulfilled his duties, he's discharged now. I'm discharging him. And I want, I want to discharge him because I know how much each other is missing. Epaphroditus is missing the church. The church is missing Epaphroditus. And I want you all to see each other so that your joy may be what? completed. That's what Paul is saying. So when you see each other and you hug each other, your joy may be made full. And not only that, because when... You all in Philippi have this joy being made full. Consequently, me here, I'm having less sorrows. And it's, it's as if the joy of the church in Philippi will kind of block Paul's back from more sorrow hitting him and pushing him even lower than where he is at. And then verse 29, alright, so how do you receive a man like Epaphroditus? What do you do when he shows up in church? So Paul says, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Paul says, when he comes, you all open up your hearts wide open and receive him, embrace him with all joy and gladness without reservation. That's his point saying, receive him as if he was, as if you were receiving a gift from Jesus. Instead of criticism, questions, interrogation, doubts, just open your heart, stretch your arms, hug him just like Christ hugs you, and welcome this man back. But that's not only, he says, receive him the Lord with all joy, and what? Honor. Hold such men in honor. Honor is something that's missing in the vocabulary of most people in America. Amen? Honor. Respect. Where is that at? Respect toward law enforcement. People don't call it the president, the president. You don't see little ones calling older ones Mr. Miss. Sign of respect. Where is that in our culture? How we speak to others and about others show honor and respect. So Paul commands the church to keep holding, that's the verb, keep holding men like him in high regard. So it's not a sin to honor people who are sacrificial in the church. It's actually a sin not to honor them. That's very important, brothers and sisters. It's not a sin to honor certain people in the church. It's actually a sin not to honor because Paul is commanding here the church. We have an obligation to prize, to honor, to value, to hold in high regard men and women like Epaphroditus. He says, such men, the demonstrative pronoun, Toyotos, here, such men or such ones, indicates that Paul considers Epaphroditus part of a, a class of people. It's as if in the church there is a class of people that deserves a very unique type of honor, respect, and appreciation because of their sacrificial lives. That's very important. There is a group in the Christian community that they must be held in high esteem and regard for their sacrificial lifestyle. 
We are not called to worship people like Epaphroditus, but to hold them with high regard, give them a place in our estimation, affection, attitude, in proportion to their stature and proven worth. And that's the paradox of the Christian life. We honor, we honor those who dishonor themselves in the, in the eyes of the world. It's those who make themselves low for the sake of others that must be held in high regard. It's those who do not care about their reputation in the world who must be held in high reputation in the church. So it's always a joy for me to honor and speak about people in the church. And I believe that I have biblical grounds not only to speak, but you bless some people in the church as a sign of recognition of your sacrificial life towards the body of Christ. It's a joy for me to honor my co-elders, to hold the deacons in this church in high regard, to prize the members who reflect this type of lifestyle. It's an honor for me to preach a funeral. Funerals where people are living or were living replicas of Christ. But you don't need to wait for people to die to honor them publicly. Do that while they're alive. Oh, but then I'm going to create pride and arrogance in their hearts. Is that your business? And let me tell you, the people who deserve honor when you give honor, they actually are humbled by that. They don't grow in pride. They're actually humbled by that. It's a privilege. It's an honor. It's a blessing in the church for us to honor people. To speak well. To treat them well. Those who reflect Christ to us. Amen? It's a great honor to, to speak well, to, to, to hold in high regard Luke and Anita for their service towards the church. Faithful, faithful laboring. And sometimes people forget the trailer. And who do they call? Luke. And it's an honor to recognize and hold in high esteem women like Hannah. I don't know for how long you have been here, but every Lord's Day that you have the Lord's Supper, she's the one bringing the elements. Who here has ever come to her and say, thank you, thank you for every Sunday having the elements? Not only that, when a mom needs help or has a baby who sets up the whole thing of bringing meals. It's a great privilege to honor people like Rachel. Sunday after Sunday, Wednesday after Wednesday, Sunday, leading us in music. She has five kids, a difficult husband, and yeah, she's finding songs, new songs for the church. You see, other musicians can, hey, I'm not going to be at church this Sunday. I have other things to do. Every Sunday. Unless something is very serious. But there were nights we were in the hospital. Saturday night, all night, come back to church. There she is, leading us in music. We have Rick and Sarah. Work so hard for the well-being of the church. Labor hard taking care of something that's very vital in the life of a church, the finances. The Bible talks a lot about finances and reflects the, the character of the church. And they have been helping us so much in being transparent, in being open, doing His Excellency. Thank you. We appreciate your labor. Dan and Brian. These men watch over you. They don't get a cent from this church. 
hours laboring prayer. We meet. We talk about each member. We pray for the members of the church. Betsy and Susan come alongside, open their homes, support their husbands. Because that's a hard labor. Not anyone is called to do that. You have these faithful women who stand by their husbands and are example to the church. The New Testament speaks a lot about honoring a certain group of people in the church. 1 Corinthians 16, 15-18 Paul says, Now I urge you, brothers, I urge you, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as this. And to every fellow working laborer, referring to leaders, I rejoice in the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Ahikos, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. About 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you to esteem them well. Very! You could see Paul opening his arms wide open. Very highly in love because of their work. First Timothy five seventeen, And that's only the church, because, as I say, our culture is completely against Honoring people who live Christ-like lives. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Or Hebrews 13.7, remember your leaders. And remember, he's not just to think about them. Remember his action in the Bible. And your sins are remembered no more. What does he mean? That he had amnesia. No, that he's not going to condemn you. He's, gonna, he's not going to act upon that. So to remember is to act. Remember your leaders. So one scholar says, in a culture, referring to the Roman culture, in a culture that had very strong codes about the giving and withholding of honor, it's important to observe the types of activity Christians are to consider worthy of honor. Oh, those attention to the needs of others rather than one's own and doing the work of Christ. These are not activities for which Greco-Roman society normally offered honor. And the same with our culture. Our culture goes completely contrary to the gospel. We're in our culture, in our society, we hold in high esteem celebrities, selfish, rich, famous, people who look good, who are the women heroes in our society? The moms who sacrifice everything to be with their kids all day long, instructing them, teaching them. Is that the, the women that are in the cover pages of magazines? No. And we honor we honor the moms in this church for the hard labor, the hard labor that no man can do of watching these kids, raising them, sacrificing their lives for the sake of these little ones. Does our culture hold in honor the men who strive to lead their families in godly manner. The men who strive to bring their families to church, is that the men that the church, that the culture honor? No. They're losers. And yet, in this church and in the Christian community, we are to hold these men 
and say, thank you, you're an example. We hold you in honor. How about the young men and young women? Are those honored, the ones who preserve their purity, their sexual purity? Is that the ones that are honored? No. The most sensual, the most sexual ones, the most perverted ones, they're honored and celebrated. So how the gospel is contrary to the standards of our society. And let me just tell the children here, the younger, older children, you have an obligation to honor your parents. Welcome them. Welcome them with joy. And hold them. Hold them in honor. When mommy and daddy tell you to do the thing that you don't want to do, or we tell you not to do something that you want to do, hold them in honor. Fight against the sinful heart that wants to reject and, and, and criticize mommy and daddy. Open, open your heart and welcome with joy in the Lord. How are we to honor such people? How are we to honor such people? That's important. We elders had a, a, a long discussion of how do we honor these people. How do we honor such people? That's amazing. The Bible has a variety of ways. With words. Obeying them. Respecting them. Opening your hearts and having affection towards them. Writing a card to them. Giving gifts to them. There's a variety of ways that we can do that. So, we just need to be creative in honoring these people. Honoring others in Christ is a powerful remedy against selfish ambition. When we obey Philippians 2.29, we deliver ourselves from self-centeredness. Amen? When we are honoring other people, we are removing ourselves out of the spotlight. And they're placing on others. Let me ask you, who should you honor today? Who should you honor today? What member in the church has been a blessing in your life that you need to come and say, thank you. I hold you in high esteem how much you care for my life, for your words to me. A church that practiced Philippians 2.29, we will have less and less sinful divisions, gossiping, murmuring. Amen? Imagine if you, instead of you joining your voice to criticize, complain, and create division, you start using your voice to welcome with joy, honor, holding high esteem other people in the church. All right, let's verse, verse 30. Why? Where, why are we to receive and honor such people in such manner? Paul says, for, for, for. Here's the explanation. And note that the honor is not attached to the social, financial status, the number of degrees, PhDs, how gifted, how charismatic that person is. You honor these people because of their godliness demonstrated through sacrifice. It's men and women who poured out themselves as drink offerings. Men and women who risk all and sacrifice everything in order to advance the kingdom. And you see that by verse 30. There is this... The English translation, especially the ESV, doesn't capture that. But it's, in Greek, it's fascinating what Paul is doing here. The, 
the way he puts the structure of the, the sentence is to remind us of Christ Jesus. So Jesus humbled himself, verse 8 of chapter 2, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Neheri sanato. And then he says, For Epaphroditus came near to the point of death for the work of Christ. And he's showing that Epaphroditus is a replica of Jesus. And it's men who are living replicas of Christ, willing to sacrifice all for Christ that must be honored among the Christians. The work of Christ. The work of Christ. The battles on behalf of Christ. And it says, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking, risking his life. All around us is all about what? Be safe. Be safe. Be safe. Be safe. Risking his life to complete what's lacking in your service. The church is to honor those who risk their lives for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. So here's a good question for all of us. Where is evident in your life that you have been sacrificing for the well-being of others? Where in your life, time, money, is evident that you have been sacrificing for the advancement of the gospel? Those are important questions. And they must be answered. And we all should aspire to be this type of people here. There is no nobility in being mediocre. <laughs> there is no nobility in being mediocre. We all need to strive to be like these people. Do you know why? Because the more you... Become like them, you're becoming more like Christ. Risking his life to complete... Look at verse 30. That's shocking, brothers and sisters. That's offensive for so many. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. If you have the NASB, it says, to complete what was deficient in your service to me. The Greek construction here implies that there was a lack between the Philippians and Paul that they had to fulfill. Huh. They had an obligation towards Paul? Are you saying, Paul, that the church in Philippi had an obligation towards you? Remember how he began the letter? Saying that they are in a partnership. In a partnership. When you go into partnership with someone, do you have mutual obligations? Yes. You don't go into a partnership with someone where just that person will lose things. That's not a partnership. A partnership is when both parties have obligations, duties. And that's what Paul is saying here. He had an obligation to meet my needs. In the same way that Paul has an obligation to meet their spiritual needs. This is shocking language because we have been formed too deeply by ecclesiologies of individualism, patterns of Christian community which do not properly form us to recognize the obligations to others because of our union with Christ. Risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And that's, that's what Paul is picturing here. Because of our union with Christ, we have duties towards one another. If we are in a partnership in the gospel, we have duties towards one another. And our duty is not to give leftovers. What is left? No. Sacrificially. Sacrificially. So, it's amazing Verses 29 through, 25, uh, through 30. Verse 19, sorry. Starting with Timothy. Let's start with Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 19 through 30. If you go and count the number of verses there, it's the same amount of verse that you are going to find in one of the most precious passages in Romans chapter 8. It's amazing. Because Romans chapter 8, we all know. How about Philippians chapter 2? I hope this will become one of your favorite passages. And you see how much 
treasure we have in these verses. Amazing. You read commentaries and, and people saying that there is absolutely no theology here. There is no doctrine here. It's just superficial information about Paul's travel log, his missionary activities. And yet there is so much. But for time's sake, I will have mercy on you. Talking about mercy, I think this, this whole text about Epaphroditus keeps resounding with the theme of mercy. 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 God's mercy in saving this man. God's mercy in preserving this man in his illness. God's mercy being poured out over him and yet at the same time being poured out upon Paul. I think about all of us and the great mercy that God had on us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. Think about the beginning of the sermon, the introduction with the Down syndrome kids. This murderous activity. Selfishness. And you think about the mercy of God in our lives. And the only reason we can look at that and say, that's nasty, that's monstrous, is because God had mercy on us, has changed our hearts. If you are in Christ, you have a new heart. You have a heart empowered by the Spirit of Christ to love others more than yourself, to long and yearn for the people of God. You have a heart that loves to risk your own safety and security in order to promote the well-being of others in the gospel. You have a new heart to rejoice in honoring your brothers and sisters. And you have a heart that's large enough to be stretched out to receive others with joy. So in Christ, you can do all these things that we see in Epaphroditus. What God is asking from us is not impossible. That's not impossible. What He's asking from us, it's possible because of the work of Christ, the Spirit of Christ that dwells within us. We can and must be living replicas of Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, faithful slaves and soldiers of Jesus. But if you're not in Christ this morning, you don't have this heart. If you're not in Christ... Your heart's shriveled, and the only person who can fit inside your heart is yourself. And today is the day that God is being merciful to you. He brought you here to hear the gospel, to rejoice in seeing Christ and to see His mercy. So today is the day that the Lord says, run to me, run to me. Cast yourself at my feet, and I'll show you mercy. And I will change you. I will pardon you. I will give you a new heart. And there is no better life. There is no better life than living lives like Timothy, Paul, and Prophetitis where we set the interest of others above our own. Where we welcome others with joy and we hold other people in high esteem and honor. Because we resemble Christ in that. Lord, we thank You for Your mercy upon our lives. Thank You for this body. Thank You for this church. Lord, I want to thank You for all the brothers and sisters here, Lord. A church of brothers and sisters, my fellow workers, my fellow soldiers, your, Lord, they are your ministers. Thank you. Thank you for the abundance of examples for my life. I love having these people around me, Lord. Keeps me close to you. Thank you for being merciful towards us. We don't deserve anything. Apart from Christ, we deserve hell. For all eternity. So thank you for your mercy. Thank you for being merciful towards us. Greater than darkness.
Thank You. And Lord, for those who do not know You, cast Your mercy upon them, Lord. Conquer their hearts with Your mercy. Subdue them. Bring them to the cross, the merciful cross. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Amen.